And now please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 20. You can find this on page 302 if you're using the Pew Bible. If you're visiting with us, you just walked into a hornet's nest. Sorry about that. Uh, These last three chapters of uh, the book are very challenging indeed. Really, the, the last five chapters. In chapters 17 and 18, we see the effects of religious confusion on the people of God. And then here in, in the last three chapters, 19 to 21, it's really the, the social societal collapse that's occurring because of this religious confusion. And uh, this is a rather long passage, but I think we should take it all in one shot. Uh, so we're going to read all of chapter 20. Uh, children, uh, maybe to help keep your interest, there, there's a battle described here. Uh, you might follow along. There, the, the battle is first, it's sort of summarized. And then the author goes back and covers the battle in more detail. Uh, so uh, see if you can follow along who's winning, who's losing. And uh, we'll try to sort this all out uh, once we've read it. So chapter 20, uh, the book of Judges, this is the word of God. So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mitzpah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. Then the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So the Levite, the the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gebeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel." Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this, thing, this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take 10 men out of every 100 throughout all the tribes of Israel, 100 out of every 1,000 and 1,000 out of every 10,000 to make provisions for the people that when they come to Gebeah and Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that has been done in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now, therefore, deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gebeah, that we may put them to death to remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed, Every one could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. 
All of these were men of war. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah. And on that day, they cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. And the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. Although All these drew the sword. And then all the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah, and the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at the other times. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at the other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the field, about 30 men of Israel. And the children of Benjamin said, they are defeated before us as at first. But the children of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men of all Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city, whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them and there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore they turned to their, their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness but the battle overtook them. And whoever came out of the cities, they destroyed in their midst. 
They surrounded the Benjamites and chased them and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah toward the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, and they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. And then they pursued them relentlessly up to Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. And they stayed at the rock of Rimmon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword. From every city, men and beasts, all who were found, they also set fire to all the cities they came to. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to his people. It was a common a slogan that's often uh, chanted at demonstrations, which is no justice, no peace. Um, people feel pretty safe about advocating for justice. I know there, there is no group that I've ever found that advocates for injustice. You know, Hoosiers for injustice, that, that group isn't a thing uh, because uh, everybody seems universally to accept that justice is a good thing. The problem is there's very little agreement on what justice actually means. I put in your outline that's in the bulletin an example from one dictionary. It says, justice is conformity to moral rightness in action or attitude or righteousness. So moral rightness. And so then we have people in our, in our culture calling for environmental justice, climate justice, infrastructure justice, healthcare justice, reproductive justice, and, and the list just goes on and on. And so we, we kind of have the feeling that justice is just a word uh, that's been used and, and we twist it to mean whatever our pet cause is uh, and, and, and we just attach justice to that. But what we really need in our culture is genuine justice according to the standards of God's truth and God's moral rightness, as the definition says. In this passage, we see what happens when we leave it to people, even God's people, to do justice according to what seems right to them. And it's just not a pretty picture. It's a picture of chaos and it's a picture of disaster. And the reason this is here is to remind you that without Jesus Christ, there is no hope for any genuine justice. That's what we're getting at in, the, in these final chapters. Without God's righteous king, your efforts, my efforts to pursue something we call justice inevitably descends into chaos and destruction. And we'll see what the hope then is that comes out of this passage. And children, if you wanna draw me a picture, you may uh, draw some of these soldiers and, uh, and listen, why is it so sad what happens in this battle? Well, the first thing I want us to notice is that the evil in your world does cry out for God's justice. We see this in verses one to seven of our text. Uh, last, last week, we, we got a, a sort of a snapshot of how the society was doing through the lens of hospitality. So we saw, if you remember, a couple pictures of what looked on the surface to be genuine hospitality. 
And then we have this terrible event that happens where these men come out at night uh, and attack the strangers that have come among them. And today, we're looking through the lens of justice. And it, it is quite interesting that when God wants to evaluate the health of the community, he looks at these two things at the end of the book of Judges here. He looks at how they do hospitality on the one hand and how they do justice on the other hand. And that's the lens we're looking through today. So we know from last week's passage, and it was recounted here in chapter 20, uh, this brutal attack and murder that happened in the city of Gibeah. And uh, the, uh, the man whose wife was killed uh, cut her up in pieces, not something uh, advocated by the Bible at all. He treats her like an animal, uh, but sends her out uh, sort of uh, presumably with messengers calling the people to respond. And so that's what we see here in verse one. All the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba as well as the land of Gilead. That'd be like saying from Maine to Miami and then the people from California came as well. This is the, this is the, the expanse of Israel. The people come out to find out what's going on. And uh, we're told that this group was so large that they had, they had leaders of the people in verse two, but also uh, an army of 400,000 who came up uh, to join them. So this is a large gathering. And so it's in this context then in verse four, the Levite tells his story about the men who came out to attack him. And then he of course uh, sort of, uh, diminishes his role in sort of pushing his concubine out the door to the mob and sacrificing her in his place. Uh, he, he sort of omits that part, uh, but in, 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 in broad scope, he describes exactly what happened. And so his description then ends in verse seven, where he says, look, all of you are children of Israel, give your advice and counsel here and now. And this is basically a cry for justice. This is what's been done. This woman has been brutalized all night until she's died. What are you going to do about it? Uh, it's a call for justice. We've been having calls for justice in our uh, country going on, large demonstration. One of the things they're chanting, resistance is justified when people are occupied. And by resistance, they mean the rape, murder, and kidnapping of women and children, civilians. And uh, there's no universe in which that is justified. And we're reading about in our Bibles a situation where yes, uh, the, the man who showed them hospitality in Gabeah, he was willing to offer his daughter up, uh, that was bad. Uh, the Levite was willing to offer his concubine up, that was bad. But the, the gross, heinous sin was done by the men of Gibeah in Benjamin. And there's no universe in which what they did is justified. Uh, that's the situation. And, and this kind of evil calls out for justice. This, as it says in the text, lewdness and outrage that has been done among the people of God. And we have to recognize we live in a culture 
that also cries out for justice in many ways. Sex trafficking, child abuse, killing of the unborn, misuse of public office, fraud, theft, uh, carjackings, all the rest of it. It calls out for justice and it's easy for us to see. What's probably harder for you to see is that the sin in your own lives also cries out for justice. Your dishonesty, your pride, your lust, your anger, your lack of compassion, your spiritual lethargy. When you sin against others, this also calls out for justice. And this reminds us why we need a savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the world in which we live, where justice is, is needed and it seems to be it's not found. But secondly, we see in our text here that genuine justice requires pursuing God's truth for God's glory. We see this in verses eight to 13. So much like last week, our first introduction to the situation seems to be giving us a good response. We, we, we saw what looked like good hospitality going on until finally the veneer was peeled off. And similarly, this initial response to this injustice looks pretty good. Verse eight says, all the people arose as one man. And that phrase, one man, is repeated three times in verse one, in verse eight, and verse 11. So the people are united. Uh, they're united in a way that's, uh, that's not normal for them, actually. And verse eight goes on to tell us they're, they're incre incredibly zealous to pursue, pursue justice. None of us will go to his tent nor will we turn back to his house. So we're, we're not, none of us is gonna go back. We're gonna deal with this now. And they come up with a system for how they're gonna share the responsibilities. We're all in this together. We're gonna share the burden and we're going to deal with this. Verse, uh, verse 12 uh, says uh, that they go and they inquire of Benjamin. They, they say, they send messengers throughout Benjamin. They say, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now therefore deliver up the men the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. So, so do you see, their, their, their focus is on the criminals. It's, it's not just sort of a blind rage and let's kill everyone. They're focused on the perpetrators of the crime. They, they want to punish them in particular. And why do they want to do it? As it said there, uh, it says in verse 13 um, that they want to remove the evil from Israel, right? They're concerned about uh, the righteousness of the nation. They're concerned about God's, uh, God's honor. In fact, that term, remove the evil from Israel, comes from the word of God. I put one example in your bulletin from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 12. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from the land. And that phrase is repeated at least five different times in the book of Deuteronomy. So th this is a biblical call for them to do according to the law, to punish the evildoers, to remove the evil from the land. So this looks on the surface like they're approaching it the right way. There's zeal, there's unity, there's a sharing of responsibilities, and there's a commitment to obey God's word and to do what God requires. Now, at the end of verse 13, we learn that the, the children of Benjamin would not listen 
to the voice of their brethren. So this is going to be a lot more difficult than it should have been because they will not listen, but the rest of Israel seems to be approaching it the right way. Commentators Kyle and Delich say about this, this is in, in the bulletin, by refusing this just demand on the part of the other tribes, the Benjamites took the side of the culprits in Gibeah and compelled the congregation to make war upon the whole tribe. Uh, so this is sort of their accessories after the fact in this terrible crime because they refuse to cooperate with punishing the guilty. And of course, this is one of the great failings of the uh, concept of justice in our current culture where people are accused of being innocent or they are guilty or, or they're, they're declared innocent based on which identity groups they belong to. And the Jewish people are finding out right now that because they're not people of color and they're not gay and they're not transgender, they're not on the list. They do not win the victim Olympics. And so justice for them is not something that, that, that's available. And this is of course the height of injustice. When we decide how people should be treated based on their identity groups and not based on the way they actually behave. But what they're doing here, this is not a pogrom against all the Benjamites. This is a specific effort to deal with the criminals in this case. And they're very serious criminals. And the word of God does deal with this. It does say, right, there are corporate aspects to sin. We don't want to deny that at all. If we tolerate sin, uh, we end up becoming implicated in it. That's what's happening here but it's very clear we're responsible for our own behavior. And it is striking that as we look at this passage, this is the most united that the people of God are in the entire book of Judges. In this entire book, they're the most united here. This is the largest groups that's gathered for one cause. Now it's tragic because they're gathered against another one of their members, but it looks like they're dealing with this, uh, this lack of justice very seriously. But thirdly, we also see that when we deal with injustice, there's always a danger that our pride is going to get mixed in. So we don't know why exactly, perhaps out of some kind of distorted clan loyalty, Benjamin rallies to the people of Gabeah. Uh, in verse 13, it says they won't listen. In verse 14, they gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And then the text goes on to tell us these guys were good fighters. Uh, that's sort of indicated other places in scripture. And Jacob's blessing of Benjamin in Genesis 49, 27, he said, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey. And at night, he shall divide the spoil. Uh, and then... Uh, later, uh, there are other uh, scriptures that point to this idea that they're very good fighters. Well, uh, despite that, they're very good fighters. They're, they're greatly outnumbered, as the text reminds us in verse 17. It's this 26-some thousand against 400,000. So their odds are not good. And the people of God, in verse 18, go up uh, to the uh, tabernacle or perhaps the the, uh, the uh, Urim and Thummim are brought uh, down to where they are so they can inquire of Lord. Who should go first? 
And they're told there at the end of verse 18, Judah should go first. Does this sound familiar? They go all the way back to the first chapter of the book of Judah, of Judges, sorry, I put this in the outline. The first two verses of the book. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord saying, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah's going up again. Although notice that there's something in that first reference that's lacking here in verse 18. And that is the part where God says, I have delivered the land into his hand. Uh, God gave no such promise at this time. And as we read, it doesn't go well for them uh, when they go up against the Benjamites. And so what does this mean? And this is one of the challenges. The commentators have all kinds of ideas. Maybe this is to teach us the race is not always to the swift or the battle not always to the strong. Uh, That's a proverbial expression from Ecclesiastes. Or maybe this is to teach us that God's ways are inscrutable. Or maybe that setbacks are not a sign uh, that that, uh, your cause is not just or things like that. I, I think probably what's going on is, is sort of revealed in the fact that they come to God, they do not ask whether they should go up against this people, they just say, who goes first? They assume that, this is, that they are right and this is what they should do. There's a kind of self-confidence that is bleeding into pride. And so what happens then in verses 19 to 22, they go and they attack and Gibeah, uh, the, the men of Benjamin come out, these guys can throw rocks, they're left-handed, so that doesn't work well if you're fighting, and the right-handed guy's got his shield on the other side, and so they have these advantages, and they kill 22,000 of the Israelites. So uh, they then retrench, they go back to the Lord, they're weeping now in verse 23, shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother? So now they ask, should I go against, uh, he is my brother, Benjamin, So it looks like perhaps that their confidence has been a little bit dented. And so they come back and they ask a second time and more, maybe more about this. Should I keep going in this? And God says, yes, keep going. And so they approach again and the same thing happens. And this time 18,000 of their soldiers are killed. So if you children are following along, there are two big losses for the Israelites in the first uh, stages of this. And uh, I think... I think what's going on, and we see subsequently, is that God wants these people to reckon with their own sins, even as they're dealing with the sins of Benjamin. Uh, This week, well, actually was while my wife was in surgery, had a little time, and so I got on uh, the registrar's website at the university, and you can look in the schedule of classes, you can kind of see how many kids are signing up for your classes for the spring, And lo and behold, I am listed for an extra class that I did not know I was teaching in there. And so I contacted the person who was responsible for that, an administrative role in our department. And he said, basically, well, you should have caught that sooner. We can't do anything about it. And uh, I said, oh, yes, we can do something about it. But it's challenging when you've, you, you're confident you're in the right and he was in the wrong and it did eventually, he did eventually acknowledge that and we got it fixed. 
But in that moment, I could just see it was a, a blessing of God. I was working on this passage, how our own pride and self-righteousness starts to take over. And before we know it, we're sinning in some way ourself in the midst of a situation like that because our pride is always lurking around. And, and I think partly that's what's going on in this text, that God is, is challenging them, even as they, uh, as they try to deal with this great outrage that Benjamin has done. God is reminding them that they are sinners as well. Why is it that Levites are wandering around trying to find a way to make a living? And we, we read about that previously, right? Clearly, that they're all failing to support the Levites and the ministry like, like they should be. Why were the pagans not cleared out of the land? They had been told to do that, and they had refused to obey God in that regard. And so these people who are going to act as instruments of God for judgment on Benjamin are themselves mired in their own sin. And I think God wanted them to remember that. Uh, Romans 3 verses 10 to 12, remember that this is the case for us as well. Where Paul writes, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And this is something that you and I need to remind ourselves if we're ever in the position where we need to be confronting somewhere, someone else about a wrong that's been done, an injustice that's been done. Even as you seek justice, you must do so recognizing that you are a sinner saved by grace. Because if you walk into a situation so sure of your own righteousness bad things happen. And that really describes what's going on in our society today. You can't even have a conversation because there's so much self-righteousness that we don't have to listen to the other person. We don't even have to try to get their point of view. And by God's grace, that was what changed in my conversation with this administrator. I pleaded with him, could you try to look at this from my perspective? And then he said, yes, when I do that, I see that this is not right. And he fixed the situation. Well, let's not have a Christian version of what we see going on in our society around us, where our own pride uh, prevents us from actually being agents pursuing uh, justice for God's glory. Fourthly, then, we see here that humility before God is essential to the pursuit of genuine justice. So in verses 26 to 28, we see that there, any self-confidence that they have is now completely shattered after losing 40,000 of their soldiers. So now they go up to the house of God and they weep and they sit there before the Lord and they fast that whole day and they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And then they inquire of the Lord and ask, shall I again go to battle against my brother Benjamin? And then this time the Lord says at the end of verse 28, go up for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So you see the change. 
Now they're offering, they're, they're giving offerings. Now they're acknowledging their own sin. Now they're humbling themselves before the Lord and pleading with him. And now he tells them he will give them the victory. And so what happens? Well, children, this is this battle that's described two times. In verse 29 to 35, it's sort of a summary of the battle and the fact that it ends with 25,000 Benjamite soldiers dead. Um, And then in verses 36 to 46, you get a more detailed account of the same battle, sort of tells the story again. And it looks like here that the Israelites took a page out of Joshua's playbook from the Battle of Ai, uh, where they had initially gone up and failed. Uh, So then the next time they try one of these, where they, they start to retreat and they draw them away from the city, and then they've got an ambush in hiding that comes in and attacks the defenseless city, then sends up a smoke signal, and then the soldiers who are retreating turn back, and now the army's caught in the middle, and this tells us that the soldiers of Benjamin, they, all, they start veering off in all different directions, and they're chased down, and they're killed, except for this, uh, this small group uh, that, that hides out at some distance. And we might say, well, what's the difference? Is it better strategy? Well, no, in verse 35, we're told what the difference is. Verse 35, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. This was, this was God's victory. And he only gave this victory in the wake of them humbling themselves, dealing with their own sins, and then uh, being brought to a position where they could be used by God. And you know, that's what the scripture tells us our attitude should be. Uh, Matthew 7, verses three to five. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You're not prohibited from going to your brother. But the point is you need to deal with your own sin before you start trying to confront other people with theirs. You need to do it in humility. And Matthew Henry writing about this says, they were previously so confident of the goodness of their cause that they thought it needless to address themselves to God for his presence and blessing. They took it for granted that God would bless him. And uh, this is why so much of what passes for justice or calls for justice in our society fails because it's not anchored in a humble submission before God and a recognition of our own sin and a desire to please him. We have plenty of self-righteousness and condemnation to go around, but as Christians, we need to be different than what we see going on in our society. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord, even as we interact on on some very contentious issues. This is why I I read from earlier in the service from Galatians 6. Look at those verses again at the beginning of that chapter. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is is nothing, 
he deceives himself. We are to confront others when they're in sin. We are to confront injustice, but we are to do it gently and lovingly with a spirit that knows we ourselves are dependent completely on God's grace. What, what Israel had to do here was hard, and it was made much more difficult by the way Benjamin responded to it. But when they humbled themselves before the Lord, God enabled them to do what they needed to do. So humility before God is essential to pursuing genuine justice. But then we see finally, again, that without God's righteous king, your efforts to seek justice will ultimately descend into chaos and destruction. And we see this in these last two verses. And it may be hard to see what's going on here, but there's 600 men who escape and they just leave them alone. They're gonna come back to them later in the last chapter. Leave them alone for now. But look at what verse 48 says. They, the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. They also set fire to all the cities. They killed everybody. They killed the soldiers. They killed the women, they killed the children, they even killed the animals. And, and what's really striking here is their willingness to do against their own brethren what they were not willing to do against the pagans that God had told them to move out of the land. That's what's so striking. Uh, Lawson Younger makes this point. The, the harem, that, that is the, the ban, the harem is this total destruction, is executed with greater determination and more thoroughly than in any of Israel's wars with the Canaanites as narrated at the beginning of Judges. In other words, they are willing to follow God more in destroying other Israelites than they are in destroying the Canaanites. And to quote one commentator, this is not justice, this is genocide. So here is how this chapter ends, and, and the point is strikingly clear. They came very close to pursuing justice. They, they were properly outraged by evil. They sought God's glory according to his law. They humbled himself before the Lord, but then with the ball on the one yard line, they fumble it because they turn the execution of justice into the wanton slaughter of innocent people. They can't do it God's way. And this is the profound irony of the book. The book begins with them failing to prosecute the war against the pagans, and it ends with them overzealously prosecuting the war against their own people. And this is the point that the author's making. Without a righteous king to lead them, you, everyone does it his own way, this is what you get. Even when it starts to look like it's on the right track, it ends in chaos and destruction. And this is why anyone calling for justice in our society and not rooting it in the gospel is doomed to failure. And as we've seen, calls for justice end up just being ways to persecute people that you disagree with. But remember, the final form of this book, we think, was not put together until after the exile. And if that's true, that means that these, these people were living without a king. 
But when you tell them this story about Gibeah and Benjamin, who are they going to immediately think of? This is Saul's hometown. This is King Saul's hometown. And you still see even here, you know, God says Judah goes first. The priority of Judah. So this is a reminder to them. You don't need a king like Saul who served himself. You need a king like David. But we know you need a king even better than David. One who's from David's line. One who is the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the righteous king from the line of David. And thank God that we are not left to try to pursue justice on our own. Because we have a king, a righteous king who's come. And who's submitted himself to the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen. He's died in our place. He's risen again from the grave so that he might enable his people, those who trust in him, to be genuine agents of justice in the world. Not seeking personal vengeance, not seeking our own agenda, but seeking his in the world. And this is true, whether you're dealing with one-on-one relationships, things in your family, things in the church, things in the community. This is the, the wonderful hope that's here. This is what happens If you do it your way, but there's another way because God has sent his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, a genuine agent of of justice in the world, the one who took our sins upon himself to free us that we might serve him. Let's give him thanks and let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your help with this passage. It's a difficult passage, this whole Uh, end to this book is difficult to read. There's so much dysfunction and bloodshed and wickedness. And yet, Lord, we see that through all of this, you are accomplishing your good purposes. And one of your purposes is to show us what happens uh, when we live uh, without a righteous king to lead us. And we thank you that your word tells us that Jesus Christ is that righteous king. He is truly just and loving. Uh, and, uh, and that he punishes according to what's actually needed and he gives grace uh, to his people. And we thank you for Jesus and for his ministry and we pray that you would seek, we would seek to please him even as we pursue uh, justice in our own lives. Uh, we would do so in humility, submitting our will to his. And we thank you, Lord, that your promise is uh, an eternal uh, existence where all Uh, evil has been put aside and that genuine justice prevails forever and ever and we pray that you would help us to live in hope of that great future even as we seek to serve you now in this world and we pray these things in Jesus name amen and now let's sing back our praise to the Lord from Psalm 94 uh, verse a and here this psalm uh, calls God the avenger he is the avenger of his people God is the one who, uh, who punishes evil, but he is also the one who gives grace and forgiveness. Stanza four tells us that he is the one who um, he will not forsake his own people. Uh, he will render righteousness and justice. Uh, those of upright heart will follow him in his way, and it is the way of justice. That's possible as we serve our righteous king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 94a.